0: Good morning, Four Corners Church. It's a blessing each week to stand before you and bring God's Word. I'm always amazed at how encouraging it is, edifying it is to, to gather and just sing these praises. We know that, but when we come in here and we settle and we start to praise God together, what, what a joyful and I think to the world just uh, something that they look into When Christians gather and sing praises to God, it is something the world really knows nothing of, and it is always such an uplifting benefit to each of us as we gather and praise God together and as we gather and study His Word together. So at this point in our service, our worship service, we're going to worship God in the form of instruction and study as we come to. His word. So, if you'll go ahead with me in your Bibles to Romans 12, verses three to eight. Romans 12, verses three to eight. You know, it it is uh, important for us to think about preaching as worship and not as entertainment. It's easy to do that because in our world, you know, we have lots of speakers, and uh, there's there's a lot of entertainment-driven preaching that actually goes on in Christianity today. And it's just helpful for us to remember that as we come to this point in our service, it's not the time to kind of nestle into your seat and grab your metaphorical popcorn and uh, just sort of get comfortable and be entertained, be passively receiving. But it is a time to engage with the mind uh, what God is teaching us from Holy Scripture. And for us today, that will be Romans 12. Three to eight. Last week we went back to the beginning, or you could say we went down to the base of the Christian life. And so the title for last week's sermon was "Basic Christian Living." After all the things that Paul has said in Romans chapters one through eleven, after all that Paul has said about justification, remember that part. Union with Christ, remember that. Christian hope, an unending, unfailing hope, life in the Holy Spirit. And then three chapters explaining God's redemptive plan throughout history and how that leaves us in a state of being thankful to God, praising God for His mercy. And then after all of that theological explanation and lofty praise, after these 11 chapters of theological richness, and it is saturated with God's truth. Paul comes to a big therefore at the beginning of chapter 12. And those sorts of structural clues are very important anytime we're reading the Bible because we're meant to feel the weight of that therefore. We're meant to to feel the the heavy weight. It It is as though chapters 1 through 11 are a massive concrete wall that has fallen on us and is meant to push us out the door. It's meant to push us into practical, everyday Christian living. And we get this therefore in Paul a lot. We see it throughout. But Paul is very strategically under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we don't know the mechanics of Paul writing this letter. Did he just sit down in one moment and just flow Did he make a mental outline before he started to write? We don't know those sorts of details. But what we do see here is a strategy, a strategy, a clear strategy to fill the minds of his readers with God's truth, God's purposes, God's goodness, his mercy, his grace, and then to push out his readers into the world, into the church, with this word, therefore. Our fundamental response to all the mercy that God has shown us is twofold. At the end of the day, our fundamental response is twofold. Looking at our verses from last week. First, we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Paul goes on to say this is our reasonable service or our rational internal worship, depending on how you interpret that. This is worship, to present our bodies to God as a sacrifice. And as I said last week, this tells us, and this came up in our gospel community group, this tells us that it is as though we are always living in the temple. And I, the reason I think that that distinction is important is because we, we're, we're used to saying we are the temple. That's familiar. But it's not very familiar to say we are in the temple, it's the imagery of being a priest at work in the temple. And you would never imagine an Old Testament Levite or, or priest or high priest especially doing the temple service in a haphazard, careless, unholy, irreverent way. You just would not, you wouldn't, you wouldn't envision that. We all know what God would have done in the Old Testament period. We saw instances where that was done and the way God responded in his judgment. And what's fascinating about the the language that Paul uses in those first two verses of chapter 12 is that this is our life in Christ. Our life in Christ is perpetually and moment by moment that of a priest doing sacred work in this sacred space. Every flick of the eye, every glance, every movement of our fingers, every step with our feet is part of what Paul means here when he says that we are to present our bodies as a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice. It also reminds us, as I said last week, that we express our worship, which we associate with our minds and our hearts, rightly so, with what we do with our bodies. So there cannot be a disconnect between the feelings we entertain and the thoughts we have and what we actually do in real time at the end of the day with our physical bodies. So that's first, the first fundamental part of this twofold response to God's mercy. Second, rather than being conformed to the world, We are to be transformed. And how? How are we to be transformed? And Paul answers that by saying, by the renewal of our minds. And so we're transformed in our lives as our minds are renewed. And as our minds are renewed, we come to discern rightly and carry out rightly God's will. There is the Christian life in a nutshell. And that's why those verses are so popular. Romans 12, 1-2, so well known. Uh, We could sum them up this way. Offered bodies, meditating minds. So if you want to just tie it all in a bow, offered bodies, meditating minds. That's the mission at the very base level for each of us if we are true followers of Jesus Christ. So as we move from verse 2, What is God's will for church life? That's where Paul was. Most fundamentally, this is who we are. This is what we are doing daily as Christians, as we live out the Christian life. But as we move away from verse 2, what is God's will for life in the community of faith? Life in the church. Another way to say this is what does it look like to have a renewed mind when it comes to being a part of Christ's church? Paul has just given us two categories, right thinking and God's will. So those two ideas come down into this section, verses 3 through 8. What is God's will in the church, and what does it look like to have right thinking in the church? That's what Paul turns to in our passage for today. So the title for the sermon this morning is A Renewed Mind in the the church, having a renewed mind in Christ's church, among brothers and sisters in Christ. So if you would go ahead and stand with me. <clears throat> We're going to read God's word at this time. We're going to begin at chapter 12, verse 1 just so we can get those two verses clearly in view, although I've just summarized those for you. This is God's Word. It is holy, perfect, and profitable for His people. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Or reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And now for our passage for today, verses 3 to 8. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer now. Let's ask him for help this morning to understand his word rightly, and to apply it. You know, I, I don't want to use this um, analogy haphazardly, but in some ways, some ways, the church is like a filling station. It is like a gas station. You are out living the, li- the life, the Christian life that you live, wherever you are, and we, we dock in at the church for these periods of corporate worship. We are filled up with God's truth. We're filled up with God's praises. We are are encouraged and edified together. And then we go out. We go out into the world. We go out into our families, into our neighborhoods. We go out into our jobs, out into the world. And so uh, I hope that we don't leave what we get here, here. But we take it out with us into the world. And so let's ask the Lord now that that also would happen. That he would be with us now to understand, but he he would also be with us later to apply and live. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are with us in your Holy Spirit. We thank you that he is with us as we gather this morning. Jesus, we thank you that you are present as you tell us in your word. We thank you, Father, that we are calling out to you now as Abba and You are working in each of us. God, we ask that you would give us understanding of your word this morning, that it would be clearly and rightly taught, and that it would be understood, that it would be heard and understood, Lord. But we we do ask that you would increasingly, in each of our hearts and in the life of our church, that you would increasingly push us outward to the world where there are unbelieving people who are on their way to hell. People who do not know of your greatness. They do not know of the sweetness of your grace. They have not tasted to see. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be more zealous in bringing them the gospel of Christ. That we would be ambassadors. That we would serve on mission. And God, that each of us, as we go to our homes, as we go to our jobs and into our neighborhoods, wherever we go, as we go to the grocery store or to the coffee shop or wherever, God, that in all things, we would be those presenting actively our bodies as a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice. Father, be with us now. Help us, particularly today, to see what your will is for church life. To see what it looks like to live within the church. And God, that we would be faithful in applying these things to our lives. That you would convict each of us uniquely. And that you would help us, Father, to see our sin. To confess our sin. To find that healing grace from you. To come to your throne and find that grace, Lord, and to live faithfully for you. Would this time together accomplish that. In the remaining remainder of this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as Paul moves from verse 2 to verses 3 to 8, he's describing what renewed thinking looks like in the church. And this renewed thinking really involves two categories. So I'm going to give them to you this morning. These are going to be our two points, and we'll go through, we'll walk through each of these. But this renewed thinking involves two categories The first is unity in diversity, and for that we're going to look at verses 3 to 5. And then secondly, gifts in action. For that we'll look at verses 6 to 8. Unity in diversity and gifts in action. To to have a renewed mind of the church is to recognize these things. It is to see these things rightly and to do them obediently. So first, unity in diversity. Let's read verses 3 to 5 again. Let's look, at detail, look in detail what's there. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think. Notice how many times he uses this thinking language. Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. We all know that pride is a big part of human life. We know that. We see that all around us. In fact, this is, the one, this is one of the major categories of human sin. You know, you can group human sin and we get the medieval uh, deadly the seven deadly sins we get that sort of thing from uh, medieval scholastic theologians and, and throughout the history of the church there's been uh, ways of trying to categorize sins and and define root causes of sins but i've always found first john 2:16 so helpful and it is particularly helpful in categorizing sin because it it gives us A description or an explanation of what I think we see, as I've said often, so clearly with Eve in the garden. He says there, he mentions there, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. This pride of life is one of the three major categories of sinfulness, of human sinfulness, mentioned uh, there in 1 John 2. It is what characterizes the world. When Paul says in Ephesians 2, and he mentions in Ephesians 2 about the the course of this world, that before we came to Christ, we were following the course of this world. and Whatever image you want to have in your mind of a racetrack or of train tracks or whatever. But whatever it is, the course of this world, the way it flows, involves the pride of life. This characterizes life in Adam. It is self centeredness, conceiving of self apart from God, and yes, thinking of ourselves too highly. So, once we become Christians, once we become part of Christ's church, pride disappears, right? I mean, we're done with that. That's old life, that's gone. It's no longer present, right? No. We know that's not the case. We know that pride has not been destroyed simply because we are in Christ, simply because we are part of Christ's church. The pride of life remains with us. It remains in us. It is part of the picture that Paul describes in Romans 7. You remember Romans 7 verse 23, the way Paul describes the the, the way it is to be a believer who was once in Adam and is now in Christ, this, this tension, this turmoil, this struggle, he describes it there, verse 23, I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Well, guess what? The pride of life is part of that. Making us captive. A different law. A law that is in contrast to the law of Christ. And we all, all of us this morning, we look into each other's faces. We, each of us, is carrying around the, the stain of the pride of life among the other two listed. And that is why Paul addresses it here in this section. Within the church, we can fall into the trap of thinking too highly of ourselves. Thinking too highly of ourselves. Having a worldly mind rather than a renewed, transformed mind as we think about our relationship to the rest of the body. So we all have a a kind of self-conception we all situate ourselves in any sphere. We've been doing that since we were kids. We, we situate ourselves in every group of people that we are a part of. We situate ourselves in our families. We situate ourselves in school. We situate ourselves in our workplace and here in this local Church. How do we think about ourselves in relationship to the rest of the body? And let me say this too. How does Four Corners think about itself in relationship to the body of Christ universal? Are we thinking too highly of ourselves? How do we relate to the rest of the the body. Let me just ask you, how have you seen this play out in your own heart? Since your time here, just, just thinking about your time here within this local church, you could think about your time as a Christian throughout your entire life, but within your local church, how are you currently now seeing this pride of life inside of you that is a a, a remnant of the inatomness that you want that once defined you? How are you seeing that play out in how you relate to your brothers and sisters in Christ and how you see them in relation to yourself? That's what Paul wants to focus in on. That's how he starts in these eight verses. A renewed mind sees rightly. It discerns reality. A renewed mind thinks with sober judgment. As Paul says in verse 3, it is sensible and reasonable because it understands reality. It sees things. Paul uses this language of rationality. He uses that kind of language because it is to see the world as the world is. To think in the way Paul is going to describe is to see the church in the way that the church really is. Not in the conception that you have. We all have phony conceptions of the church. It, there's percentages in our minds, right? We hope that we're moving more towards a 100% not that way, but that's not the case. We all have wrongheaded views of the church to some degree. Each of us has an imperfect ecclesiology, an imperfect doctrine of the church. And so Paul wants to recalibrate our minds. He wants us to have a right view of, in accordance with reality. So what is reality within the church? Well, Paul's answer in these first three verses can be summed up in this phrase, unity in diversity. Unity and diversity. The picture or image that Paul uses is the human body. This is the, the metaphor he uses. The church is like a human body. In a human body, there is unity. It is one human body. So each of us is one person. And each of us walking around, moving around this morning, you're not going to leave this room and leave your hands behind. You're going to take those with you. You're going to take your ears with you. You're going to take your feet with you. You need those. You wouldn't be leaving here if you didn't have those unless you're crawling, you need your knees. You need every part of yourself there because you are a unity as one human body. But this unity involves diversity. It is at its core essentially unified and it is at its core essentially diverse. It is both at the same time. It has many members and those members have different functions, they do different things. They carry out different functions. And Paul tells us in verse 5 that that is what the church, the body of Christ, is like. He says this, so we, comparing it to the body, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of Christ. Another. Now, I could spend a lot of time explaining this, or I could just read to you 1 Corinthians 12, verses 14 to 20. Because there, Paul makes so clear what it is he's talking about. So there's a more in-depth explanation of this concept given there in 1 Corinthians 12. So I'm going to read to you from verses 14 to 20. Listen closely to the way Paul describes it. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many That's why we speak of body parts. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. That would just be wrong thinking. That would not be sober-mindedness, sober judgment. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, he's, meant, he's given you absurd images. Everyone who's reading this in Corinth probably laughs a little bit when they read this because it's absurd. Maybe like a bunch of eyeballs. While there's a group of eyeballs walking into the church this morning, a group of ears, a group of feet. You know, this is ridiculous. And Paul is trying to show the absurdity of this in terms of the human body, so that he can show the absurdity of it in the church and how we conceive of each other. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Unity in diversity. So let me just pull out a few implications for us. What does this tell us about living as the body of Christ within the local church? So first, everyone has a function. Every single Christian matters. Everyone matters. You know, maybe you're here at Four Corners, and maybe just in your life in general as a Christian, in the body of Christ universal, You've just maybe always felt a little bit kind of left out, to the side, like you don't have anything to offer. Maybe uh, you're, you're quieter, maybe you're not as outgoing, maybe you uh, just, I don't know, there's a certain personality characteristics, or maybe there's just uh, your own kinds of gifts are just very quiet and no one really notices them. And so maybe you feel as though you really don't matter. And I hope that a passage like this will lift you up in the Lord in a healthy way to understand that you very much do matter or you wouldn't be saved. God would not have saved you if he did not intend for you to be a member in his body, in the body of Christ. The fact that you have the life of God in you, the fact that you have Christ's blood upon you, demonstrates that you do in fact matter to his church. You have a function. No one in the church is a second or third class citizen. We talked when we were in the Sermon on the Mount as we entered into chapter five about uh, being a kingdom citizen. No one who is part of Christ's kingdom is a second or third class citizen. We're just different. We're just different. And we function differently with everyone playing a role and everyone meaningful. Each matters. So that's the first implication. The second is no one is more entitled to belonging than another because of his or her function. The elders of Four Corners Church are no more a part of this church than anyone else. The person who stands up, whoever he may be, and preaches to you on Sunday mornings is no more a part of this body of Christ, if you're a member here at Four Corners, than you are. Or the church universal, if you're a Christian, than you are. No one is more entitled to a higher status of belonging. Being an elder, being a deacon, being a gospel community group leader, being a ministry leader, you are in no way, and I am in no way elevated above the other members of this body. There is no more intrinsic belonging in any of us than there is in anyone else. This is thinking too highly of ourselves, right? Right? So the contrast to what I just said is to think too highly of ourselves. So question, is this where you are? Is this where you are? In any way, shape, or form, do you find this in your heart? As you're moving around Four Corners Church, as you're you're part of this body, has the position that you're in or the function that you play, has it in any way elevated your heart to do exactly what Paul says here with a renewed mind, not with that old in-Adam worldliness, but with a renewed, transformed mind saying, I am no better, no more important, no more significant, and I belong to no greater degree than any other person in this church. Thirdly, every member belongs to the others Because we're all part of the same body. That's why Paul says individually members one of another. We belong to each other. So here's the thing. We are to rejoice in the function of another. You know, the, the opposite of this is to be moving around in the church and to see the function of another person And to elevate that person above everyone else in a kind of idolatrous way or to envy that person because they have a position or they have a function that you do not have. The opposite of that, the renewed mind way of thinking about that is to simply praise God and rejoice about that ear over there or about that foot down there. Or that mouth over there, that eye over there. Praise God, we're all part of the same body. So we should be rejoicing when another part of the body functions well. It would be absurd for the eye to get frustrated that the foot is actually working. For the ear to envy the tongue. It's just silliness, right? And Paul is meant to show, Paul is trying to show that. He's trying to show the absurdity of not functioning as this unity in diversity. But here's the most significant part. It is God who has designed the body this way and distributed the various functions. So 1 Corinthians 12, 18 says, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. So we we think about God's sovereignty in our salvation And we talked about that a lot back in Romans 8 and Romans 9. But do we think about God's sovereignty sovereignty in terms of our functions? As we carry out our our activity as part of the body of Christ, do we see those functions as being a part of God's sovereignty? That God actually has chosen it to be this way. That he, the sovereign Lord, has distributed his good gifts and these functions to each of us according to his will. And so it's utterly foolish to try to do another function that you're not called to do or gifted to do. It, it's utterly foolish because ultimately it is God who has done this. It is God who has made this the way it is. And we find that same idea here in our passage at the beginning of verse 3. Notice what Paul says there. For by the grace given to me, you notice that? You know, that that's how he starts it. For by the grace given to me. What that tells us is that even Paul's function is not an exception to that rule. God is the one who appointed Paul. God is the one who called Paul and put Paul to this work. God has arranged it by giving Paul grace, the grace of God apostleship. And so Paul himself is understanding that he is not to think of himself. He's the apostle. He's writing these letters. He comes to town and he comes with commands from the Lord. There's a point at the end of 1 Corinthians 14 where Paul Uh, talks about prophets within the church who would prophesy contrary to what he is saying, and he basically tells them, no, 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 understand this. What I am saying is a command of the Lord. Paul speaks as the apostle, and specifically, not just an apostle, the one called by God apostle to the Gentiles, At a period in redemptive history where God's salvation is going out to the Gentiles in mass number. You could argue that there is no one in the the early church more significant in terms of the way they are used than the Apostle Paul. And Paul says this about himself. All of it is God's grace. God has ordained this. God has chosen it to be this way. My function is a part of his grace. By the grace of God. Given to me. We also see God's sovereign grace at the end of verse three, where the distribution of faith itself is ascribed to God, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. It all comes from the sovereign Lord. And so it's just another reason for us to understand or to make peace with our function within the local church and not to envy one another or to look down on one another even ourselves, as we think about our role within the church. But this idea of unity in diversity and the assigning of function by God's grace gets even more specific in verses 6 to 8. So we're going to turn there now, verses 6 to 8, and that leads to our second point, gifts in action. We've seen the body metaphor, unity in diversity, and all that that implies for us. There's much more that could be said there. But we've seen basically what that means for us. And now we come to gifts in action. So look with me at verses 6 to 8. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So same kind of idea of God's grace which was flowing out of the last passage or the last few verses. Let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith. If service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So we are one body with many members, and the members have different functions. So what does this look like on the ground? It's been pretty general up to this point. What does this look like on the ground? How does this play out as the church is the church? The answer is spiritual gifts. Verse 6, we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So all this language about diversity, all this language that we've, we've just seen about God's grace working in us, It boils down to, specifically, these spiritual gifts within the church. They differ according to the grace given to us. God has given every Christian a gift. Or gifts. It's mixed. A gift, gifts. God has given these to every single Christian. If you are a Christian, you have gifts. You have gifts. Period. So here's the thing. This changes the way that you think about your role in the church. How in the world can a person be a mere spectator after reading a passage like this? How how can we just come to church and absorb things and be sponges? How can we just come here and say, well, we're getting some some teaching and we're singing some songs and and we, we get to know some people and have some good community? How in the world can we think of church in that way after reading a passage like this? We all have gifts from God. He has distributed gifts according to his sovereign will and grace. I'm going to read to you again from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Look at verses, well, you could just listen if you'd like, or you can look there. Verses 4 to 7, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 7. Now, there are varieties of gifts. But the same spirit. So one spirit, many different gifts. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Back to that that source, that fountain. It's all flowing from God. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. Good. So let me just stop here and draw out two implications for us from what we've seen so far. First is, because these gifts come from the Holy Spirit and do not originate with us, there is absolutely no room for boasting. You know, we might envision, maybe you've said this before, these great figures in church history, you know, Augustine, Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon. Whoever you want to put in that, fill in there. Recently, R.C. Sproul or Billy Graham. Think of these figures throughout church history, and we see the way that they were used by God and the things that they did. And at the end of the day, here's the thing. We might think when we get to heaven, we're going to, we want to see these people. You really won't. I don't think I don't think We will. I don't think we will, because there's going to be such an overwhelming sense when we get to heaven that there's absolutely nothing there but God's grace. That's it. Apart from God's gifting, apart from God's grace, we wouldn't even know that person in history, but it's only because the particular gifting and the particular grace God gave them meant that they had influence in some way that put them on the map of history, But when we get to heaven, those things just kind of fall away. First, because of Christ's glory, which is all we're going to be consumed with. And second is because we will realize fully with this sober-mindedness, purified, that there really were no distinctions. There really were no great men of history or great women of history. There was the disbursement of God's good grace. That's what we will come to. To see, And what this does is it destroys all boasting. There's no room whatsoever for any kind of boasting among the body because anything that we do that edifies the body is because of the giftings from the Holy Spirit. That's who's behind it. He gets the praise, not us. He gets the praise. So that's the first implication. The second is that they are for the common good. Notice the way Paul brings that out in 1 Corinthians 12. These gifts are for the common good. And that tells us right off the bat, they are not for our own purposes. Selfish ambition and personal satisfaction are swallowed up by the common good. The common good is what is in view. When we get up here on Sunday morning, We better be about the common good. Not about ourselves. Not about lifting up ourselves, drawing attention to ourselves, or gaining some kind of ground for our own ambitions. We're looking out into the future and seeing what can be. We use these gifts rightly. No, just let that explode out there. That's ambition. That's personal, selfish ambition our gifts are not for us just to sit around and enjoy for our for our own benefit they are meant to be useful to the body immediately useful to the body for the common good so what are we to do with these gifts the simple answer is use them (laughs) we we have to use them they can't just lie dormant tucked away in our pockets or at home in our closets where we have to dig, dig, them out, dig them out, our gifts are to be used. And this verb is actually not found in the Greek text. So you see the word here, use them. It is not actually found in Greek, but it is implied by the context. And so that's the reason it's put in here. Uh, but it's obvious from the context we are to use these gifts. We are to use them well in the right way in accordance with God's will, like going back to our last set of verses. So Paul goes on to list some representative examples of those gifts. That's what we see here in verses 6 to 8. It's a, it's a representative, uh, it, it's a list. It, Is not exhaustive. It's not meant to be all the spiritual gifts that you could possibly catalog. And it's very difficult to catalog the gifts from the New Testament. We find two lists in 1 Corinthians 12, one at the beginning and one at the end. And we find one list in Ephesians 4. We also have what Peter says in 1 Peter 4.11, where he divides the gifts into speaking gifts and serving gifts. So let me just read from that really quickly. And I won't read all of these passages, but you can go and look at them. The beginning of 1 Corinthians 12 and the end, and then also uh, Ephesians 4. But here's what Peter says. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. That's what they're for. As good stewards of God's varied grace. By the way, if we don't use them, we're not being good stewards. We're like the person who buried the talent. We have to use these gifts. We have no right to take what has been given to us, what has been entrusted to us, and just sit on it. We have to use it. We must use them because we are good stewards of God's varied grace. I go on, First Peter. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength of That God supplies. See, he groups them into these two categories, speaking gifts and serving gifts, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Christ through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What does that tell us? When we use our gifts, Christ is glorified. How do we make much of Christ here at Four Corners Church? I mean, are those points on our vision statement just words? Just nice churchy words so we can feel nice like uh, as a church, have, have this little vision. No. Centering on Christ means something. And one of the ways that we center on Christ is by glorifying Christ through the use of our gifts. Reflecting on the various lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament, one scholar, Douglas Moo, writes this. I think this is helpful. These texts suggest that Paul and presumably the early church generally recognized a small number of well-defined and widely occurring gifts along with an indefinite number of other less defined gifts, some of which may not have been manifest everywhere and some of which may have overlapped with others. So that tells us it's not altogether helpful to go through and make a list of all these gifts and kind of create a master list. You got these passages, you got these passages, and there they go. All the gifts are represented here in these particular texts. What what Douglas Moo is saying is that these lists are different and that they are meant to give us a sense for what sorts of gifts were at work in the early church. Uh, Not to say that all of those gifts will always be present and that those gifts don't overlap with one another. So they do. They do overlap. And and there's overlap within one person. There's overlap between the gifts. One gift involving necessarily another gift or two or three. We got general language like helps or service. These are very general ideas. And so it's not altogether helpful to go through and build everything around identifying precisely what all the gifts are. We're meant to use these as examples to understand how gifts work in the church. So let's look at the ones Paul lists here, that Christians are to make good use of for the common good. And, and this can't be a full-scale analysis of all the topic of spiritual gifts. It's a very big topic. But what I do want to do here is look at the ones Paul mentions. So with the rest of our time, that's what we're going to do. So first, he says, if prophecy in proportion to our faith. Prophecy in the New Testament was associated with the apostles in particular, but not exclusively. So as I said, at the end of uh, 1 Corinthians 14, there's that situation where Paul's giving instruction, and he says that there might be instances of prophets who are saying something different than what Paul is saying. And Paul says, no way, no way. What I'm speaking to you as an apostle is a command of the Lord. So not all those who are prophesying, are apostles, but it is a gift associated with the apostolic ministry. It concerned revelation and inspiration from God. It was a mouthpiece of God speaking from God. They would speak, and it would be understood as God's Word, God's very words. Ephesians 2, verse 20, associates prophecy... With the establishment of the church in the apostolic period. And so we get language like this. The foundation of the apostles and prophets. So in the apostolic period when the apostles are moving around and doing ministry. There is this prophetic ministry that is being carried out by the apostles. But also by others where the word of God is being spoken. But this prophecy was to be tested to ensure that it was in accordance with the apostolic faith. And, and that's why many understand this language according to uh, or in proportion to one's own faith or in proportion to our faith, that the, way to, the better way to translate that is according to the analogy of the faith. In other words, that the, the prophets in this period are prophesying in accordance with what has been revealed in the apostolic teaching. So that's one way to translate this, or it could simply mean that the prophet is not going beyond what in his own heart, by faith, he recognizes to be from God. My understanding of this gift of prophesying is that it was not meant to continue throughout the history of the church, that this This gift of prophesying was part of the church's life as the scriptures were still being written. This explosive period of revelation where we get the apostles writing the New Testament in this explosive period of revelation which is encapsulated for us in the apostolic writings that during this period there is also the expressing and carrying out of this gift of prophesying as God's revealed truth is being written down and recorded. And as God was establishing his church with signs and wonders, we see this in the New Testament period, that God is establishing, just as he did the ministry of Moses, for example, with signs and wonders, and establishing the ministry of Elijah. This is a very pivotal period in redemptive history, Christ's coming, Christ's resurrection and exaltation, and Pentecost, the pouring out of the Spirit. And so God is confirming the ministry of the apostles. He's establishing the ministry of the apostles with these signs and wonders. And I would also put the other sign gifts, what have been called sign gifts, gifts of healing, gifts of languages. I prefer that over Tongues, I think tongues becomes confusing. Gifts of healing, gifts of languages, working of miracles. These are part of the establishment of the apostolic ministry. So I would put all of these in that category as well. Let me just say this. That is not to say that God doesn't heal. No. That's not to say that God uh, does not work miracles today. No. No. It is to say that to understand these specific things as gifts that individuals have. I have a gift of healing. I have a gift of miracles. I have a gift of speaking God's word to you. That those gifts or or being able to utter languages that I otherwise did not know. That these gifts were for the period of the apostles. And if you're interested in, we've talked about this as elders. We we talked about this on a retreat and came to uh, this basic conclusion. And we have for... for everyone if you, if you guys want to take a look at it, a book that kind of encapsulates our understanding of this as an elder board as a whole, and that book would be Spiritual Gifts by Thomas Schreiner. And so if this is a question for you that you're very interested in or, or maybe just even hearing this today, you want to understand a little bit more where uh, the elders of Four Corners Church, where I in particular am coming from, um, then please go and read that book. And let me just say this, too. There will be people in our congregation who don't share that conviction, who have a different view on that sort of thing. Uh, that's not an obstacle to you being a part of Four Corners Church, to being a member of Four Corners Church. But just understand that we're not going to practice church in that kind of charismatic way, understanding that there's going to be prophesying's and so forth. So that's not the way we understand what the scriptures teach on this topic. So please do talk with us. Talk with uh, your elder, but I would encourage you to read this book, Spiritual Gifts by Thomas Schreiner. I think it will at least help you understand the point of view, uh, even if you, you don't agree with it yourself. So, second, if service in our serving, if service in our serving, this is put in very general terms, and the language implies that the work generally associated with deacons is in view. And so you don't want to associate this gift with being a deacon, but it does seem that these are the sorts of things, it's a very broad category that would be present in someone who is being considered for a deacon. Serving, we are to serve in our serving. Third, the one who teaches in his teaching. This is explaining God's authoritative revelation. So whereas a prophet is speaking God's word, this is what God says. Thus says the Lord, a mouthpiece of God. I am not a mouthpiece of God. I am teaching you what God says in his word, explaining God's revelation. Thus says the Lord, and I'll do my best to explain it to you. That is teaching. We see this emphasis in the pastoral epistles as Paul writes to Timothy, and we get in Ephesians 4 this idea of a pastor teacher, and we know that pastors must be able to teach. Of course, the emphasis is on teaching Christ and Him crucified. We teach Christ, Him we proclaim teaching how Christ is the fulfillment of all of Scripture, teaching the gospel of Christ, what Paul delivered to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, teaching how all of Scripture shows us God's purposes in Jesus Christ. Fourth, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. Where teaching explains exhortation, calls to action. Exhorting is to urge, it is to admonish, it is to comfort Those who are afflicted. There is an aspect in Christian preaching. uh, There's an aspect of teaching. And there's an aspect of exhorting. Both of those present. These are often joined together. Exhortation and teaching. Fifth, the one who contributes in generosity or simplicity or purity of heart. Not with hypocrisy. This is to give liberally for the right reasons. So if God has gifted you to give, give. And do it generously. Do it with liberality. Six, the one who leads with zeal, diligence, watchfulness, not laziness or idleness. Hebrews 13, 17, referring to the elders of a church who are leading the church. They are keeping watch over souls. That's the kind of posture of a leader. One who is keeping watch over souls. Seventh, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This has the idea of ministering to those in need, those who need sympathy, not begrudgingly as though they are a burden, but cheerfully. So let's uh, use as an example someone, uh, you're caring for an aged family member who is just kind of going down and down and down and they're really struggling and there's a lot of physical ailments and problems. What a blessing. What a blessing you are to them. When you do that cheerfully. What a blessing you are to them. When they look at your face. When you're wiping up a mess. Or when you're, when you're doing something exerts yourself and you pull a muscle. Whatever. What a blessing when they look on your face and what they see there is gladness. How that lifts up their heart. But what a depressing thing for them to know deep down inside that while you're doing that for them, you hate it. It's terrible. It's terrible. And you wish that it were just over. Cheerful acts of mercy. As I said before, this is just a representative list. You can go and look at those other lists. And we see all the different ways that God through Christ has gifted his church by the Holy Spirit. So let me just close with this. There is much work to be done in a church. And all of us, all of us, all of us, are part of that work. It should never be the case that we have ladies back there leading children's ministry who cannot find people to help them with our children. We should all be convicted of that. So go home and be convicted because that's a problem. We need people serving in children's ministry. So I hope that today, this coming week, there will be many many names being put on that list. People willing to to serve. Don't be a spectator. There are many churches where you can go and be a spectator. Four Corners is not going to be one of them. This is a place where we must honor our king by using our gifts. Each of us has gifts, and God wants us to use them, and to use them well for his glory and for the common good. So let's seek the common good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, God, that you would continue to work it into our hearts this week. and Lord, that we would leave here ready to do it, that we would do it faithfully. Lord, that we would use the gifts that you have given us. Lord, that we would be discerning as we are transformed, as we continue to grow in renewal of our minds that we would begin to discern your will and in that we would discern your will for the use of our gifts for the common good. Father, where we are using our gifts for our own advantage, for our own ambition or satisfaction, God, would you convict us, show us and help us to move past that where we are envying others, where we are thinking that we don't belong. Lord, would you please work and bring health and unity and diversity to this local church. We thank you for the Lord's Supper and the unity that it puts forward. We thank you now, God, as we enter into this time. We pray that you would bless us with communion with one another and communion with you. In Christ's name, amen.